Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I appreciate you all tuning in today. I have officially been doing this podcast for one year. It's hard to believe, at least it's hard for me to believe, but I appreciate you all tuning in during those 12 months. We did 40 episodes and in these next 12 months, I'm hoping to get to 52 episodes, but I need a little help from the listeners. I need people to rate and follow and share the show. That helps me bring on guests. And I know you have been enjoying the high quality and caliber of guests that I've been bringing on. So if you could show your support by doing that, that would be greatly appreciated. In 2022, I did get data back from Spotify that I was in the top 5% of shared podcast on their app. And then in the top 10% of followed podcasts globally on Spotify, but still have a lot of work to do. So if you could show your support for the show by rating and following and sharing the episode, that would be greatly appreciated. So on today's episode, I have Dr. Jordan Soper, who is a licensed psychologist and certified sex therapist. So welcome to the show, Dr. Soper. Hi, Amy. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. I appreciate you being here. So I found Jordan on Instagram. She was on a Promiscent ad or a, a Promiscent reel. And for those of you that don't know, Promiscent is a like a numbing spray for men that have premature ejaculation. So whenever I saw her on the ad, it was something like, you know, I'm Dr. Jordan Soper and I'm here to teach you the ins and outs of the in and out. And I thought, oh my gosh, I need to have her on the show. So here we are today uh, talking. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. So when you say you're going to teach people the ins and outs of the in and out, what kind of education are you doing with Promiscent? Well, they are a wonderful organization. They're actually based out of Las Vegas, so they are local. And it's always wonderful to be able to work with local companies, but particularly with organizations that really have an emphasis on evidence-based interventions, really talking about topics we don't discuss and sex in general we don't discuss in the U.S. and much less sexual issues or sexual dysfunctions. And Promescent is a local company that really emphasizes a lot of concerns related to men's health or people who have penises, but they are also really expanding their mission statement to pretty much encompass everyone. And I have been with them for a little while just doing article reviews of evidence-based articles, looking at scientific studies with them. And now we are collaborating to really focus on sex education, which is one of my favorite things in the whole wide world because it's so important for pretty much any topic. But the more you learn about something, the easier it is to understand it, destigmatize it. Welcome to mental health. So really being able to learn different techniques, tools, topics. How do you bring up sex in your relationship? And just so many things to improve sexual functioning as well as overall mental health functioning. Yeah, it's so funny that you say that because with owning men's health clinics, we talk about sex so freely, like it's not a big deal, like it's nothing to go sit down at a dinner and just talk about sex and the same for you. But I always forget, like, it can be an extremely uncomfortable situation for people just to casually talk about sex the way you and I are used to talking about it. 
It always makes dinners very fun. But what I love about being able to openly talk about it, you engage in something called mirroring, where the more you talk about it, the more other people may feel comfortable to talk about it. So really using ourselves as examples of, hey, this is normal, just like talking about what you ate today or talking about how your day was, being like, oh, how's your relationship? How's everything in the bedroom? Have you tried some sprays that may help a little bit? You know, it's not supposed to last an hour, right? That's a little long. More than 30 seconds? Okay, let's have a conversation about that because you're really normalizing normal human experience and sexuality begins at birth and ends at death. That is just the nature of the beast. So what are some of the most common things that people come to see you about? Because what's interesting is I read an article in the Huffington Post and it was the eight questions sex therapists get asked most frequently. And some of them kind of surprised me because I think of you dealing with maybe sex addiction or infidelity or a sexless marriages. And there were questions around like, am I normal? Is my desire normal? Is my size normal? Can I learn to orgasm? How do I get my partner to orgasm? So I was kind of like intrigued that you're fielding those questions. Very much so. And my practice, so the Center for Sexual Health and Wellness is my private practice over here in Las Vegas. And I emphasize any issues related to sexual health and functioning and coexisting anxiety disorders and conditions and trauma recovery. My background is actually in the Veterans Administration. My background is working with military members and veterans who've experienced military trauma, combat trauma, military sexual assault. So a lot of my background is actually in trauma recovery. So my answer is going to be a little bit skewed, but because I do also see a lot of other individuals, other issues. Most of the people that I see in my practice have some kind of anxiety, maybe not a condition, but some kind of anxiety about sex, whether it's due to a medical condition, negatively impacting erections or lubrications. I work a lot with gynecology, so endometriosis, menopause, Sex after baby is a huge issue for a lot of individuals, but a decent chunk of what I see in my practice is individuals who have never had some type of sex education or the sex education they had was very shame-based and feel a lot of distress associated with human sexuality. So I really love to take an educator role or working with them on sexual issues in order to get them a sex life that they want as well as addressing medical and mental health issues at the same time or things that make them anxious, especially when it comes to performance anxiety or compulsive behaviors. So like sex addiction is called out of control sexual behaviors and looking at the role that porn plays in that masturbation, the difference between healthy masturbation versus not healthy masturbation. Like, Are you spending five hours a day doing this and not going to work? maybe we should work on that. And does it bother you? No, I got five hours to spare. I'm like, cool. Please just use lube. Don't chafe. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of those things that you just mentioned. Let's just talk about the last one, porn, masturbation, and what you see on how that impacts. We know at this point that porn does change the brain. And sometimes I know when we see men that have delayed ejaculation, our providers are having a conversation about the amount of porn that they're taking in. So I'm curious your perspective on this. Mm -hmm. And it's a great question. And I use a bit of a silly analogy when I explain porn is to sex what full metal jacket is to war. 
It's got similar pieces to it, but there's a lot of differences. So anytime we're looking at the impact that pornography has on our functioning, you're really looking at individual patterns, the frequency of someone's use, what age they start using. Are they watching porn in the absence of masturbation? So porn is not inherently bad. Sex workers are workers. It is a profession. It is an entertainment job. Like it is an industry for a reason. It's what is our relationship with that industry. So for individuals who might have delayed ejaculation with their partners, but not with themselves, it's really looking at do they have certain patterns of thinking and behaviors associated with sex, including Solo sex. I like to use that term to explain masturbation as far as solo sex. You are having sex with yourself still counts versus partnered sex. And pornography gets a very bad rap because people assume, oh, it's bad. It can be super useful, super educational. It is what is your relationship with porn? And then what is your relationship with your own sexuality? What is your relationship with your sexual partner? And really dissecting those three different components to look at thinking patterns, emotional patterns, and behavioral patterns to identify anything that might be causing distress in the unit is really imperative to look at before we're like, oh, please, is bad. No, it's not. Not necessarily. Yeah. So it's all in context and what expectations the viewer has or what the expectations might be once they're done viewing that with their actual partner. So you mentioned sexual performance anxiety. Expand upon that. Oh, yes. I'm so glad that you asked this question. It is my favorite thing in the whole wide world to talk about is the interconnection between performance anxiety and sexual functioning. For a lot of individuals, particularly those who have penises, the idea of not being aroused is very anxiety-inducing because we put a lot of emphasis on people who have penises that you want sex, right? There's a lot of messages that young boys and men grow up with in the idea of like, you always want sex or your dick should always work or if your dick doesn't work, something's wrong with you. Nah, not necessarily. You could just be tired. Are you hungry? Are you actually turned on? Like, being able to break those assumptions that you have to perform all the time. And it puts a lot of pressure on individuals and reduces their sexuality to a hard dick where male sexuality is way more than a hard penis. So I like to work with individuals to identify what their relationship with their own anxiety is and how it negatively impacts their sexual functioning. So looking at the biological components, because if you are so anxious in a situation and you're worrying about whether your penis is going to work, is your partner going to come, you're going to start feeling that like physiological anxiety. Your heart's going to increase its rate. Your blood pressure is going to change. You might be eyes darty. You might be really distracted. That's potentially if it's more of an anxiety-related concern. Now I'm worrying, oh crap, am I going to have a panic attack in the middle of the bedroom? What if I do it wrong? What if they judge me? And then the worries increase the anxiety. The more worry and anxiety that you have, the less your body is going to put energy and resource into your genitals to want to be intimate. And it's both your genitals and your brain as the brain is the biggest sex organ that you actually have. Yeah. So whenever you're dealing with the performance anxiety, are you typically just dealing with the male or are you dealing with the couple? Because I know like sometimes a female perspective can be, they instantly go to, 
you're not attracted to me. Are you cheating on me? What's wrong with you? And then it's kind of this vicious cycle. Now they're starting to stress about it, like, oh my gosh, if I don't keep my erection, she's going to think something's wrong with me. So I'm curious if you're talking to both of them and maybe how my second part of my question is, how are you talking to a female when it comes to dealing with a partner that might have this issue? Great question. And that really, you're hitting the nail right in the head of that vicious cycle, that feedback loop that a lot of people get into, whether with themselves or with their partners. I see people in both an individual and a couple basis. And if there is a concern related to performance anxiety, I like to really start looking at the specific behaviors and then kind of lead up to it. So really breaking it down into its nitty gritty patterns. And I love to even ask those people, I'm like, how many times did you masturbate? How long did it last? How many times did you initiate sex with your partner this week? At what point, what was going through your head? Were you actually aroused? Were you focusing only on your penis versus the fact that they're making noise or making sound? What do you want to hear? Are you thinking about how you have that project due in a week and a half and you haven't even started it? So I like to identify specific patterns associated and then if I do have the option to have the partner involved, I want their specific patterns too. And seeing how that looping system interacts. One of the first things I really love to do, and I know this sounds very basic and rudimentary, is just basic sex ed inquiry and provision of education. Asking people, you know, what do you know about sexual functioning? What's your education background in this? Most people say none abstinence only or, well, I got that one health class when I was in like fifth grade or eighth grade. I'm like, oh, right then. So nothing. Cool. But then I'll ask how much porn they've watched. And they're like, oh yeah, I've watched porn or I've watched Bridgerton or I've watched sex scenes in media. And I'm like, all oh, right. So a lot of just, hey, these are really normal reasons. This is biologically why the penis gets erect. This is why the vaginal canal gets lubricated and really just doing that basic education because most people don't know. And then looking at their specific patterns. So if the partner of the person who has maybe the erectile dysfunction is thinking it's because of them being able to call a spade a spade and go, well, it sounds like you're really worrying that he's not attracted to you. In what way does that impact your desire to want to have sex with him? Do you treat him differently? Do you ask for a lot of reassurance of like, am I pretty? Am I pretty? Am I pretty? And then they're like, oh my God, my partner feels like crap and I made her feel like crap and vicious cycle. So it's really about identification of the patterns and challenging the patterns, which I like to tell people, I'm like, your body can get erect just randomly. It doesn't mean necessarily you have to be looking at something attractive. And then I explain like morning wood or explaining to people who maybe don't have penises of the impact of puberty is like, if a leaf blows in the wind, you might get erect first. And that's normal of like a 15, 16 year old. Once you're like past 20, that's probably not happening anymore. So just that basic knowledge is so imperative. And it's also just fun to talk about. People light up. I love that portion of treatment because they're like, I never knew this. This is interesting. I love TED Talks and books. Jessa Zimmerman's Sex Without Stress is one of the most phenomenal books, especially for couples when there's anxiety. And it really talks about the idea of an avoider, a pursuer, and how to specifically bring this up with your partner. And you just using those basic knowledge can change a sex life forever. And it is so cool to see people really grow from that. I was literally just going to ask you that if you had any books or resources. So repeat that book that you just said, the TED Talk. So that is, so Jessa Zimmerman's Sex Without Stress is wonderful. I adore Ian Kerner's She Comes First. 
Lori Brado has Better Sex Through Mindfulness is really great. Emily Nagowski, Come As You Are. These are researchers and clinicians and people who have dedicated their lives to this topic. And the writing that they do is very patient-focused. It's written for them. You're not reading a textbook. I've read those for you. I promise I won't torture you with those. But these ones are really designed for people and the general population. And they're just such a wonderful, wonderful references. Okay, I'll be sure to link those in the show notes so people can access those quickly. Can we talk about the difference between sex and intimacy? And maybe sometimes how that gets blurred and how that can become a problem in a relationship? Oh, for sure. And this comes up a lot where, and I'm going to get like kind of macro for a second, our culture, especially in the US, really emphasizes even the the idea of intimacy or physical touch. Most people are like, oh, that means sex. Like a lot of people are very familiar with the notion of love languages by Gary Chapman. And they're like, oh, physical touch, that means sex. I'm like, no, it doesn't. It's just one form of it. So intimacy and sex are a smidge different. Sex is the sexualized interaction between individuals. That could be with yourself, with others. It could be in a group setting. Intimacy has different flavors to it, which also does include sex, but it also has emotional intimacy. It has intellectual intimacy. It's kind of this shared closeness in multiple different ways, but not necessarily in all. And that's the biggest thing is for a lot of individuals To have sex, the physical act of sex, at its highest degree, there is a desire for intimacy, whether that is, I want to feel emotionally close to this person, I want to feel cognitively close to this person, when we have the same values, we have the same viewpoints in the world, that makes people honestly a little bit more horny when there's a lot more symmetry involved. So a lot of individuals, when they come into my office and say, well, we're having sex issues, I'm like, great. How much do you guys talk in general or do y'all talk to each other in general? And they're like, no, we mostly just talk about the kids. I'm like, great. Do you talk about how y'all are doing as people? Probably not. So that really interplays and interlocks with the absence of intimacy in general does have a negative impact on sexual function. And that includes solo sex. How intimate are you being with yourself if you're engaging in that negative self-talk and you're telling yourself that you're not attractive or that your partner doesn't like you or that you're a terrible employee or a terrible mom? What makes you want to touch yourself? What makes you think you are worthy of touch? And that's where a lot of individuals run into issues is they have those negative beliefs about themselves that start to seep into multiple areas of their life, including sexual. So how do you help a couple bring back their intimacy? Because I was prepping for this podcast. So I was listening to other sex therapists and they talk about how people are like so quick to turn to, well, let's role play and let's, you know, they instantly go to this like spice up their sex life. And this is where like understanding the difference between sex and intimacy and why that's so important. So what tips are you giving your clients? Mm -hmm. I usually say role play is on the list, but like, let's not skip a few levels first. I love having patients try different things, really starting with, if you want to make a change in your sexual relationship, first and foremost, identify what is the desired change. Do you want to increase the frequency? Do you want to increase lubrication? Do you want to increase the time? That's where the promescent delay sprays are really helpful for a lot of individuals who have premature ejaculation, where they want to 
decrease the shame associated with coming really quickly, but they also want to increase the length of the episode or the experience. That's where they really help. So I like to first identify what is the desired change and then backing up and say, what do you hypothesize as the obstacle to the change? And that's where I get to come in and also from a third party perspective go, well, it really sounds like you two don't have any time. You've got two kids under five and you're both working full time. One of you has sleep apnea. What the heck? You have no time. Anytime it's you or math, math wins. That is just the nature of the beast. You are out of time. So then we look at structuring ways to be more intimate in the day-to-day. So looking at sexting with each other or sending each other naughty gifts. That's one of my favorite things that people really forget to do. That's a great way to flirt. So looking at how do we flirt? How do we have conversations throughout the day to be sexually and emotionally more intimate with our partner? Not just we need to stick something into something. No, you don't. No, you don't got to start there. The in and the out that you're educating people about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You mentioned the duration of sex. Like, is there some kind of average? Like, do you know, like, what women want? Like, how long are women really wanting to have sex? There is some averages. We don't have a, this is the perfect amount. Like, that does not exist. We have some statistics on average frequencies. So in heterosexual couples, and that's where a lot of this data is coming from, the average sexual experience is five to seven minutes in its totality. And that does include foreplay, whatever your definition is. So this is where the definitions are really helpful and also somewhat problematic to us when we're doing research of, well, define sex for me. Is that penis into vagina? Is that oral sex? Is that mutual masturbation? Most of the research is on penis into a vagina. That's about five to seven minutes. The most desired behavior of a sexual relationship reported by most individuals is increased foreplay with a desired amount being 20 minutes before anything goes up the hoo-ha. And that includes kissing and massaging and talking or sharing the experience together. And that's where flirting and using your language and your voice can really come in of like, if you're licking your partner's neck or kissing them, taking your mouth away from the neck and going, do you want me to do that more? And saying that seductively, it's increasing the eroticism of the experience, even if you're not directly interacting with the genitals. And I think that's one of the most desired factors. I've noticed a lot of the patients I work with is it's not about penis in the vagina or someone coming. It's intimacy, it's eroticism, it's passion, it's feeling desired, where Dr. Ruth has a phenomenal quote, which is the most important six inches are the ones between your ears, because getting your brain turned on has an impact on your body. And if we can do that and turn that on, oh, things are going to work so much better physiologically too. And back to that foreplay I mean, if men are having issues with their partner orgasming, this foreplay is extremely important. And I did some great podcast with, I don't know if you know Susan Bratton, but she's like a sexual intimacy Mm -hmm. expert. And she really kind of deep dives on the importance of this foreplay and it's needed to get the female partner where they need to be. Very much so, because foreplay is designed to be throughout 
a sexualized experience. So it's basically once someone comes, then foreplay starts all over again. It's that looping system. So that's where it can't just be a couple minutes right before you want to try to get down and get busy. It's more of increasing the desire for sex, the idea of sex, the kind of rent that sex takes in your sexuality. I don't want to just say sex, but sexuality takes in your head during the day. And that will increase your body's desire for sex, your brain's desire for sex. So telling your partner compliments or telling them specific things or doing specific things that you know calm their brain down. And that's where anxiety comes in and worry comes in a lot. If your brain is so distracted thinking about all these other things, it's not going to have space for eroticism or even the idea of foreplay. And really expanding on that area can have a very big impact. I wrote down something that I read that I thought was a little intriguing. It said 43% of Americans over 50 say their sex life is just as or more adventurous than when they were in their 20s. I thought that was like an interesting statement. I'm like, I liked that because I'm like, okay, that's saying that the partner, they're more comfortable with each other. But at the same time, I was a little bit surprised by that statement because so often in the clinic environment, we hear about the intimacy struggles and keeping that relationship alive. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I would say it's very consistent, in all honesty, because I had the privilege of working in the VA system. I worked a lot with older adults or individuals that at different developmental ages throughout their lifespan. And the people who report having the quote unquote greatest sex life are older adults. Because not only do they know what their bodies want, they have been with partners who also know what their bodies want. They've communicated those things to each other. They're willing to try things. There's also a willingness or a desire for modification because as we get older, we expect your body to change physiologically. So needing to use different either medications or different things to help with erections or using different lubes, sex post-menopause really changes. So because there is a higher tendency to have physiological concerns as we get older, if we talk about these things, we address them, we normalize them and not shame them, people often report having increased connectability, hello, increased intimacy about sex and their relationship. And then that has the, one of the biggest impacts of it as well. We also know that one of the biggest factors associated with longevity in a relationship is physical touch, not sex. So if couples are touching each other, holding hands, cuddling, spending time together, that also increases the connection between the couple. And then the more you're touching, the more you're like, well, we could do another type of touching too. And that is a huge factor that really increases the desire for it. It's that dance between desire and arousal where having both way more ideal. Well, I'm excited about that stat then. 43%. I thought round of applause for everybody there. Oh, hell yeah. 43%. (laughs) I'm like, please do. And it should be fun. And especially as we get older, we deal with a lot more negative things that are happening. We start losing people in our lives or major stressors are happening. Sex should be fun. Intimacy should be fun. If you're not having fun, what the fuck is the point? Yeah, exactly. So you talked about lubes and I saw some of your videos on Instagram. You do like a lube taste test on a regular basis. Do you have any lube recommendations? (laughs) I do. (laughs) 
Flavored ones, not so much, but generally, yes. Why are you doing that to yourself? It's a great question. I'm a very big advocate. I won't ask my patients to do things that I don't fully believe in or that don't have some research. And we don't exactly have a, there's just so much. We don't have a lot of research. I'm like, I wonder what all of these taste like. So I'm a big proponent of something called exposure therapy, which is a type of treatment that's really designed to address anxiety-related concerns by approaching stimuli that historically have made you anxious. And one of the things that makes me anxious actually is like being in the public eye or public speaking. I'm very good one-on-one, but the moment you get me in front of a crowd, I'm like, Ugh! so I'm actually really set using, like we talked about that mirroring earlier. I want to make sure that if I'm asking my patients to do exposure, I'm going to make sure I'm doing it too. So increasing my anxiety. I also think it's fun. And I am happy to be what I call a dancing monkey if it means that people are going to learn. So I will do a lot of things in my life in order to set an example that, yes, some of these things are really scary and anxiety inducing, and you can do it. My partner, he's told me when I was going to go on this journey, he's like, just have fun with it. And I love food and I love being able to look at those like entertaining things. So flavored lubes is a different thing. So that's mostly for exposure and your entertainment. So feel free. Lubes in general. Lube is so much your friend. The lube that is not your friend, and I say not your friend is KY, but different lubes are very useful for a lot of different things. I love Uber Lube. I really love Sliquid. I love their silicone lube. And that's where if you have access to any local shops, different sex stores, even just ordering samples so you can get kind of get a flavor, not for its taste, but for its texture. And also for some individuals, there's allergen reactions, but Sliquid has an organic version that is really good. Promescent has a number of different lubricants as well. So feel free to check out that website. Just don't use things that are not designed for internal use. Yes, just because you can eat it, maybe you shouldn't use it as a lube like extra virgin olive oil or Crisco. Don't use that. Petroleum jelly used to be used, like that Vaseline used to be used. We have better things. You don't need to be doing that. Please don't. Don't be sticking Vaseline up your coochie. (laughs) So why don't you recommend KY Jelly? Because that's like the number one brand, I would assume, on the market. Yes, because it's been around for such a long time. The reason I don't like KY is KY is a medically oriented lubricant. It is phenomenal for single insertion. It is typically what is used for gynecological exams and prostate exams. So you put the lube all up on that finger, you put that lube all up on that speculum, and then you go, and then it stays there. You don't have to go in and out and in and out and in and out. KY wasn't designed for that. It's a lot more gritty. It dries out very quickly. And the company has tried to make modifications, but we have other products that are more sexually specific versus medically oriented. So I recommend KY if you're doing like medically related things. Like if you're using a dilator and practicing vaginal stretching or pelvic floor work where you're just sticking something up and it's not moving. KY is probably your friend in that moment, but the moment that you're moving things in and out, we got other options that are way more fun. You know how many listeners you just helped out right there? (laughs) I hope so. If I do nothing in this world, but have people use better lubes, I am so happy. I mean, there's so many people listening, they're like, instant, like, oh, crap. <laughs> mistake, mistake. I've definitely at one point in my life gone into my parents' household and been like, where's the loop? And my mother will show me and I'm like, toss in it. And I just give her new stuff. I'm like, here you go. Please enjoy. 
<laughs> what is like when people find out that you're a sex therapist, is there something that like people always want to ask you or do people like kind of shy away? I'm kind of curious. No, most people are like, what? I have had a couple people like, so are you a madam? And I'm like, no, that's not what this is. <laughs> but most people are very interested in it. They're like, wait, what do you do? And then I explain to them what I do. And they're like, oh, and then there's that wonderful internal moment when they're like, I want to ask her so much, but then she's going to think that's about me. And then I don't want her to think that, but I really want to know the answer. And most people will ask. And I'm pretty blunt when I explain it. My introduction, especially, I'm like, oh, I'm a psychologist and a sex therapist. I say it like one big breath. People are like, wait, what? Mostly want to know. And I think that's a beautiful example of our fundamental thirst for knowledge as people. I think we want to know. But I have had a couple people be like, so, like, are you a prostitute? Because I'm in Vegas. That's not an uncommon question. (laughs) But I'm like, no, that's not how this works. And then I whip out my card and I'm like, hello, here you go. If you're looking for someone in the sex industry, that's a different question. (laughs) I feel like the people in the Midwest are like, hmm, what are the people in Vegas talking to a sex therapist about? It seems like it might be so much juicier than what we have going on over here. Which is hysterical because I actually did my grad training in the Midwest. I did my graduate work at the University of Indianapolis. So I was in Indiana and was in Midwest. So I have worked quite a bit in that population. And some of the greatest sex therapists that exist come out of the Midwest. Like Kinsey is in Indiana. So there is a need because everyone has sex at some point. Or people who don't want to have sex that don't feel distressed by it. People are like, wait, what? So, no, Midwest has definitely been a population of like, nah, you all got some stuff going on too that you got a lot to talk about. <laughs> oh, so what is the number one question that you get? Can you think of what it is off the top of your head? Am I normal? But I get that within sexual health and mental health. Okay. Yeah, and that's what that Huffington Post article said. Am I normal? The number one question people want to know. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. My professional identity is Dr. Ruth meets Morticia Adams. And Morticia has a fantastic quote, which is, what is normal to the spider is chaos to the fly. And normality is so subjective. So it's like, am I normal? Do you really want to be normal? I'll tell you what's common or what's average, but please don't aim for normal because it's too subjective. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We don't want to be normal. We want to be fabulous. Mm -hmm. Optimized. Okay, well, I am going to attach all this information in the show notes and where people can get in touch with you, find you on your social media, watch your lube taste test, (laughs) be completely entertained. I know that the listeners had a lot of takeaways from this, so it was great having you on the show, and I definitely appreciate your time today. Thank you. And thank you to anyone who is listening and feel free to share this again. The more we talk about this topic, the more we normalize it. And that is really our emphasis. But Amy, thank you so much. I am so privileged at the opportunity. And if you need anything in the future, you just let me know. Okay. Thank you very much.